0: Hello and welcome to the Practical Neurology Editor's Podcast for the December 2023 issue of Practical Neurology, the essential guide for the everyday life of all neurologists. So Practical Neurology is a joint venture. We've got two editors. That's me, Phil Smith, a neurologist at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff.
1: And uh, I'm Garrett Fuller. I'm a neurologist in Gloucester. That's uh, Gloucester, UK.
0: So it's actually three years since we first recorded an editor's podcast back in December 2020. And uh, a reminder that we have two other podcasts linked to the December edition, uh, and you can hear these over the coming weeks. So in a few weeks' time, we'll be publishing the Editor's Choice paper interview brilliantly conducted by Amy Ross Russell who's a neurology trainee in Southampton in the UK and that's followed by a discussion of the best case reports with Martin Turner who is from Oxford in the UK Uh, and he discusses that with two neurology trainees Ruth Wood and Sinu Tai. That's in about a month's time so please subscribe on your favourite platform to get notified every time we publish a new podcast but but Garant, so lots to talk about in the current issue of the journal. But we start with our editor's choice paper.
1: Yes, the Phil. So it's been remarkable over the last year, really. Actually, since the the initiation of ChatGPT and uh, a whole range of other uh, AI, artificial intelligence bots, that everyone's suddenly become very interested and anxious about them, what they are and what they can do and so on. Uh, So we commissioned James Teo and his team to write a a review as to what artificial intelligence is, what it can do for neurology, and to try and tell us a bit about the future. And he's produced a a lovely paper, which actually uh, uh, really makes all of it seem actually much more accessible. And it's a, a paper with a number of firsts. The first first is it's the i think it's the first article we've ever had which actually uh, stipulates the species of the authors uh, this article was written by four humans with generative ai helping with formatting and image generation and you do wonder whether this is going to be something uh, that's going to be more more explicit in the future and they take us through a, a, a very nice Um, description of what AI is. And and they aim as to produce a practical, non-technical description of what's gone on. And they start off with an interesting musing as to what intelligence is. And you would think that that's a straightforward thing, but the moment you start breaking these things up, it becomes quite tricky. Um, But... uh, a lot of the, the the issues about artificial intelligence is actually not sort of the complicated algorithms that um you know come at the back of guidelines which they say aren't artificial intelligence they're just what they say they are they're just guidelines but they talk about machine learning which actually uh, is a sort of a generic process which allows uh, machines to learn from data to try and improve algorithms in it's a reflexic kind of way. And uh, it, it's really this that I think is uh, that, that is producing the dramatic changes that we're seeing. And I think very helpfully, they, they start off with the, the question that worries us all is, you know, will AI replace neurologists? And the evidence seems to be very clearly that it won't. But in doing so, in answering this question, you do have to dissect what neurologists actually do. And I think, um, again, they've very carefully dissected out that um, what do we do? Well, we, we make diagnosis. We have a multimodal interpretation of patient um, symptoms and, and signs. Um, you know, what we would think of as our classical thinking, we, we make clinical decisions. Um, we do some practical tasks like lumbar punctures, injections, and so on. And we communicate. And and pretty much none of those are, uh, exclusively can be taken over. Uh, there are quite a lot of ancillary things that we do, like coding, uh, writing reports, uh, and uh, doing audits and so on. And, and what they recognise uh, and what they discuss is that quite a lot of these subtasks can be automated. And when they talk about automated, uh, improved analysis to provide information to inform the decision tree and and they give a couple of very nice examples of um, stroke CT angiography reporting and uh, how that can inform decisions and the speed that you can actually go on and they give a a range of an analysis of where we are with other things and um, the stroke seems to be furthest forward we're all familiar with the idea that uh, they can, you know, these large language methods can actually be taught to be quite responsive and quite intelligent. And you can see that that's something which is moving forward. Uh, you can see it's quite useful for things like um, e.g., reporting, though, again, that's still a little way away from widespread use. But all of these are informing discussion rather than replacing what's gone on. They discuss... Uh, some of the things which actually are more interesting in relation to uh, research so the the fact that computers can work out how proteins fold and that can tell you quite a lot about what to do uh, really sort of shortcuts something which historically was a very very slow program they open the box as to how these systems are developed and I th- and I thought the thing I think which I found extremely interesting is the the way in which they're regulated uh, for the most part we we think of you know the introduction of things like you know um, spell checking google maps and so on just uh, appearing and being useful but uh, software that's being used for healthcare as opposed to just uh, su- su- just supporting healthcare is regulated in the same way as a medical device. So it comes uh, through a whole process of developments which is rather analogous to the development of a medicine um, with the appropriate regulatory changes. So I I think they've done an extremely uh, good service here and and, um, Amy will be discussing the the paper in much more detail uh, with James Teo and his team. In her podcast. But what I think it's done is allowed you to see what AI is and what it isn't. Um, Because uh, a phrase they use in this paper is it's often sold as a magic source, you know, it's something which makes everything a bit better. And whilst it clearly can do lots of different things, it is a tool which actually they liken to uh, statistics. Uh, where obviously statistics help you understand, whereas AI helps you predict what's going on. So um, I would commend this to, to, to everyone, really. Um, in fact, interestingly, I think even going beyond neurology, because a lot of people will think about AI and uh, it'd be useful for them to understand what it can actually offer.
0: Yeah, hu- hugely timely. We really needed this paper. It's it's very exciting. There's every reason to be optimistic rather than being frightened about it. Uh, you know, they make the point that doctors who use AI sensibly will eventually replace those who do not. I mean, it's it's there. We we must use it. But as you say, it's not about taking over the job. It's about using it and uh, using it for subtasks which it can do so much better. Uh, than we can and will make uh, medicine safer and and uh, uh, will will work out well so the examples of the subtask well I mean it, it, you know the, the acute stroke reading of the scan as you say I mean it's here it's comparing an acute CT scan with a vast number of normal scans and therefore it can very quickly pick out the tiny abnormality um, and it doesn't tire in doing so doing the same thing repeatedly. With EEG, although it's not quite there yet, it's bound to get even better at picking out the differences from a vast range of uh, of, of normal scans, and histopathology will do well. It's very good at searching through data. Uh, you know, It harks back to Hedley-Emsley's uh, paper on outpatient coding, because it can only work, really, if, if we input our data in a very standardized way, then it becomes that much more useful. And in the paper, they give the an example also of searching letters, where in an afternoon, this team were able to find all of the women taking sodium valproate on their database and all the details about them. Again, it depends on were the data put in rigorously and standardised in in the first place. So, I think that you know we we would like to think that perhaps the next stage for AI is things like prognosis in head injury, but they caution us that for this you need vastly more data than we would ever imagine i mean we with the scale and quality of the data of say you know you need a 1000 people who've gone through the process of head injury and uh, can work out the prognosis even to get a semblance of information that's better than than our general than our algorithms that we use already so exciting powerful full of potential i think there's there's a, a huge amount in this for clinicians uh, the, the other thing is will it will it take over an editor role there's a lot in the journal that maybe could go over to AI lots of subtasks that that we have it, it could for example have written this bit of a script for a podcast uh, uh, though I didn't do that but what I one thing I did do actually was um thinking of a referee report and I, I put in uh, one of the Papers were talking about today into the you know to try to get a bit of a critique about it, and uh, you know it comes up with some sensible suggestions. It, it's mostly to, repeats back what's in the paper already, but at the end it will say, well, maybe it needs a more balanced perspective, or maybe uh, you know potential solutions could come out that sort of thing. So maybe there's a role in getting a bit of a critique on a paper, of sort of first draft of a referee's report, that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of things that we can benefit from in this as well, I think.
1: I I read an interesting article where a journalist was talking about uh, how they used AI. And uh, obviously, they're talking about the large language models which generate these reports and so on. And what they said was actually the key things to to use AI to essentially produce the first draft, because in essence, you you get the machine to do that. That tells you what is known, what the, the, the standard thinking is about something, because that's how they generate their data. And basically, what you need to do is to do better than that. And it sort of sets the bar over which you have to jump. And I think that's quite an interesting and different way to think about, certainly using large language models with all the, the problems that they come with.
0: Yeah, and imagine every time we pick up a newspaper now, probably the first draft has been written by AI. And, uh, you know, the, the, there's nothing wrong in that at all. It, it makes sure that the structure is uh, sensible, that um, what what is known out there is going to be included in it. And then it needs a human brain contribution as well. Uh, that's still going to very much matter and will uh, ensure that it, it really is... You know, in the case of practical neurology, something that is highly relevant to the, to the readers. But I, I think we shouldn't be ashamed that the first draft of things is you know made by by a computer. That's fine. I mean, it it, it gives us saves us a lot of work and makes sure actually the ultimate product is probably better.
1: Although I'm not sure that the first draft is currently being written by computers. I'm delighted to say because clearly you know you're dependent on the pool. In, in of our general, yeah. well, well, indeed, I think across the piece, I think it's just as an occasional task. So let's move back to more traditional neurology. Um, I think the next paper is really quite a a leviathan. It's a very big topic because they've they've taken it on. Uh, Ventilatory failure in chronic neuromuscular disease. Um, Mark Robertson, James Lillick and their team have taken us through that. So, um, Phil, you were looking at this.
0: Yeah, I looked at this and this, of course, is very close to my heart. But on a personal note, I wrote my MD thesis actually on breathing in neuromuscular disease before I trained in neurology. So this is something that at one time I I knew a lot about and it, it was the thing that got me into neurology, oddly enough. So on the bookcase behind me, I have a textbook, Campbell, agostoni and Newsom Davis on the respiratory muscles. So John Newsom Davis, before he became a fantastic immunologist, was uh, uh, a world expert on the respiratory muscles. So it's something that I, I uh, still greatly enjoy thinking about and uh, At the time I was doing this work, though, in the 80s, there was a very poor prognosis for things like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and that has changed with the advent of use of steroids. But the other big difference was the wide application now of assisted ventilation, including in things like uh, motor neurone disease, providing symptom relief. That was certainly not the case when, when I was working on this. So this paper is really uh, a comprehensive guide, all that a neurologist will want to know about ventilatory failure. Three main mechanisms why it happens, the failure of the respiratory pump, obviously, but also sleep disordered breathing. So both upper airway collapse and the pump not working, the diaphragm not working. And then additionally, pulmonary infections, reduce compliance of the lung and the chest wall and so forth. So. There's an important emphasis in the paper on the acute. So myosinia, botulism, guillaume barre syndrome, we're cautioned to take these very seriously because a lot of the management of respiratory complications is about anticipation, is about, is about uh, making measurements at a time when people haven't got symptoms, looking for the eventual crisis that might come when the vc drops below a liter so we must not rely on symptoms we know that people can die quietly in the corner of a room as their vc their vital capacity falls and they are not breathless because they're not really moving the only work they're doing is breathing and eventually the tidal volume of 400 mils will be uh, they won't even have a vital capacity of that level so uh, it, it's really important to anticipate these problems. The authors give us three pillars of the clinical application, which I find quite helpful. The first is that we must recognize that um, ana- neuromuscular diseases differ in their involvement of uh, the respiratory muscles, and therefore their clinical trajectory can differ. So, some, so with Duchenne, the skeletal muscle weakness parallels the respiratory weakness. And so uh, it all happens together and very disabled, immobile people really are not using much energy and therefore not becoming breathless except at night when they when they fall asleep and their diaphragm no longer works during rapid eye movement sleep. But uh, other conditions, the diaphragm goes early and someone with... Um, for example, acid maltase deficiency or nemaline myopathy or certain limb girdle dystrophies will get orthopnea and will get um, unsatisfactory sleep, uh, loss of concentration, nightmares, that sort of thing uh, at an early stage. So the, the, the other pillar was to recognise the symptoms, to look out for positively, to ask about daytime somnolence and early morning headaches, non-refreshing sleep, etc., because these might indicate diaphragmatic weakness and and uh, also obstructive sleep apnea, and there are other conditions like myotonic dystrophy where people are somnolent even without overt respiratory failure because they've got a central drive problem as well. And yeah, the the, the third thing was that to focus on prevention, raising awareness of neurologists of these problems in people with neuromuscular disease because they may not present with near They may just have these problems uh, and are unable to push themselves to the extent of being breathless. I also, there's three handy practical tips they give us as well, which is quite good. Hadn't come across this before. So the 20, 30, 40 rule, you need a vital capacity of more than a litre, i.e. less than 20 mils per kilogram body weight. So that's the 20, but also the 30 is, is mouth inspiratory pressure, 30 centimetres of water and more, and uh, the 40 is mouth expiratory pressure, maximum expiratory pressure, uh, which people need better uh, values of. Uh, the other thing was, if you haven't got a handheld spirometer and they're quite hard to come by, what about using single breath counting? So here, you say a number every, sorry, two numbers a second, uh, and say as many as you can in a single breath and you multiply by 100, and that's your VC. So that was rather clever, I thought. And of course, if you get to fewer than 10 numbers in a single breath, that means your vital capacity might be less than a litre, and uh, uh, then you are in trouble. Um, and the third thing they raise, of course, we, something we've had in practical neurology before, paradoxical movement of the epigastrium on sniffing as an indication of diaphragmatic paralysis. So things we we can look out for it's it's a it's a really comprehensive paper it's got lots in it there's loads more than i've been talking about but uh, uh it's something that neurologists will need to uh, be aware of because it can be a life or death situation if you get it wrong
1: so yeah no i think a very useful paper with um also, I, quite a nice description of the kind of a, re, respiratory support machines, which obviously are a little bit of a black box. I'm, i them in mean, the pictures, they're not black, they're white. But um, uh, oftentimes, knowing the difference between NIV and CPAP, knowing what a cough assist machine can do and so on, uh, it, I think is very helpful. And uh, it describes those things in some detail.
0: Yeah, and, and a couple of little boxes at the end, interesting information. Can, can the patient fly in an aeroplane? and uh you know if if you're not sure then you have to have a test where you you breathe 15% oxygen and if your po2 goes below 6.6 kilopascals you're going to need supplemental oxygen during the flight it seems also to mention you should avoid overnight flying because falling asleep on a plane uh would be doubly risky um and another box of a case of malignant hyperthermia uh the risk of course of developing this, those with certain genes, but also Duchenne and Becker uh, might get non-malignant hypothermia from rhabdomyolysis. And uh, so, you know, we we would need to avoid certain anesthetics, such as the inhalational anesthetics, um, isoflurane and so forth, or suxamethonium, something else we've had in practical neurology before uh, as part of a general anesthetic. So, caution in other ways as well, besides
1: just thinking about the mechanical respiratory pump. So the the next paper we're going to discuss is uh, actually taking a whole new look at at a problem that perhaps we don't really see as a problem. And this is a paper from Harry McNaughton and Vivian Few um, from New Zealand. And they're talking about intrinsic motivation. And uh, they make the point that we don't really talk about motivation, but actually they've done some very nice studies using a sort of standard formula to enhance intrinsic motivation. Uh, what, what is intrinsic motivation? Well, the idea is uh, that you, know, if you can encourage people from the outside, but actually people tend to make most progress in terms of rehabilitation if they can actually self-motivate. And they, they identify that, that there are essentially four elements to self-motivation. Uh, motivation, intrinsic motivation. Uh, the first is having a purpose and uh, n- knowing where you're going to be in 12 months' time, uh, You know, some sort of big dream, something that you want to do, some sort of direction of travel seems to be important. And then there are two elements, autonomy and mastery, so that learning how to do the thing uh, and actually becoming expert at whatever it is you're wanting to do. And in fact, interestingly, these these motivations, uh, aut- autonomy, mastery and purpose, actually apply to lots of different occupations. And, and they add in a, a, a fourth element, which is connectiveness, which is who can support you, who can help you with this. And in the studies that they've done, they've uh, used, in essence, uh, a, a fairly simple series of um, pictures and uh, aids all of which are available free online and they've got a link in the paper to allow you to get to them where you can actually help patients work out how they're going to go you know what they want to do they want to get back to fishing they want to do whatever they want to do and the idea the, the evidence seems to be that it, this actually has a substantial impact with a number needing to, to treat of about one in eight which is actually remarkable in terms of our, our improved outcome. So it seems like a very simple thing. It has implications to the way in which you behave in the clinic. So, for example, rather than uh, so saying, you know, what tell me what's happened to your tremor, what's happened to your hand? You know, you start off by saying, well, how are you? What are you doing now? So focusing on the big picture, the whole patient rather than uh, the disease, which uh, it shouldn't seem like a huge step. But actually, I think we can all understand that it, it is a slight shift in thinking. So, uh, I think this is a very interesting study and, or a very interesting paper, um, which I think has quite a number of implications. The, the trials they've they've published have looked at stroke and COPD, but I think the principles behind it are probably generalizable. They, they report that they're doing more studies uh, to try and actually um, prove that. But I think it's the kind of communication that goes below the radar you you can imagine that some people do this kind of thing but they don't know that they're doing it Um, thinking about it more explicitly will perhaps help all our patients if we can improve their intrinsic motivation move the locus of control to them uh, undoubtedly rather than uh, depending entirely on us for uh, whatever can be done so i thought a very interesting paper
0: yeah yeah, I mean, in a way, it's sort of real practical neurology, that that it's actually doing something as a neurologist that, that comes from the world of management training and coaching, really, though explicitly, it's actually not coaching, that would be extrinsic motivation. It's about what a manager, us as a neurologist can do to enhance that intrinsic drive. I mean, what drove David Beckham to practice and practice his free kicks? It wasn't just because someone else advised him to do it, like Alec Ferguson, it was going to be uh, that he really, really wanted to complete that task and to become uh, truly expert at it. But it has also to be interesting and enjoyable. So when it comes to converting that to neurology, well, the, the original title of this paper was It's Neurologist's Greatest Superpower. But actually, we tried to change titles a little bit in practical neurology so that they can be picked up in PubMed. We felt that it wouldn't get picked up in PubMed like that. But but it, in a way, we've lost something because it is it is a superpower that we could have just by changing the way that uh, uh, we get patients to think about their problem, to uh, get themselves internally motivated. The The example they use is to do with stroke rehabilitation. I mean, someone in the devastating position of having had a stroke what will help them to drive themselves forward to the next step of rehab and uh, to get to this number needed to treat of one in eight which is an amazing thing they, they say you know if it were a purple tablet then uh, everyone would be prescribing it but because it's a it's something that people might be a bit skeptical about then uh, we stick with the external motivation we say you know come on you can do it etc rather than helping them to help themselves. So it's it's a way of changing the way that we uh, talk to people to get them to come up with the ideas and get them to change their own motivation by focusing on the goal, focusing on the things that that they want to do, their dream, and to try to get people to change their attitude towards what can be achieved. Uh, It's a really, really interesting one and it, it will work in the clinic uh, maybe it'll work for us in general in our life you know just ch- changing to putting putting ourselves back in control rather than um, listening to what doctors advise us to do well
1: and I think it, it also applies to trainees I mean thinking about um you know the trainees who are have intrinsic motivation they have a purpose um you know, they want to achieve mastery they uh, are therefore given more autonomy and you want to give them as much autonomy to try and do that so uh, i i think the elements that, that are at play here can be applied across a whole range of different things um
0: yeah so- these are just life skills aren't they really and uh it, it it's it's to it, it's outside of neurology as well it's going to it's going to work work well by just changing a bit of attitude, really, Look, looking where we fit into the bigger picture, what is our role in what we're doing, and uh, making sure that we you know av- avoid uh, tasks that we find repetitive and tedious, unless they've actually got a purpose that is uh, uh, part of the bigger picture.
1: We then move on to um, a paper which we commissioned really to try and open another black box, um, Tilt Testing, which uh, it comes from Paul Cooper and Richard Sutton in Manchester. Uh, Phil, you were looking at this one.
0: Yes, um, and uh, this, is, this is something that we probably all know a bit about because uh, syncope is so common and all neurologists deal with it. And, uh, you know, it would be easy perhaps to overuse or to be cynical about the role of tilt table testing. So uh, what um, Paul and Richard have done here is to help us to understand its proper place. Uh, in a way, actually, having two enthusiasts write about it might risk Pushing its benefits above its detriments, but but I think they've done a good job and they've made a a balanced, um, practical paper paper here that um, we we can uh, trust is going to be the the uh, best way to apply this this uh, technique. So the first thing is that it must be carefully targeted. It's a you know, it's a complicated test. It's a um, it's going to be an expensive test because it involves a whole morning of uh, of testing, and we mustn't overuse it. A bit like EEG, we need to think. Well, why? Are we using it? And we're using it really to confirm a diagnosis of vasovagal syncope in someone where you're fairly sure that is the answer, but not quite certain, or perhaps in those who have injured themselves severely in a uh, reflex vasovagal syncope episode. So the, the 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 paper then looks at the technique of doing a uh, a tilt table test. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. They don't call it tilt table test. They call it tilt testing. Uh, I've always called it tilt-table testing, but no, I should be now calling it tilt-testing, I think. So I'll refer to it like that from now on. Um, The first thing is to exclude dangerous conditions like uh, HOCUM, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or aortic stenosis, that the people fast for two hours before the test. And then nowadays, the best one is called the Italian protocol, where you put supine for five minutes, then you have this passive tilt for 20 minutes, And if you've still not got anything, you then might give sublingual nitroglycerine and wait another 15 minutes in the upright posture. It used to be supervised by a physician, but now it's fine to be supervised by trained nurses or technologists. And now, of course, we also have the benefit of a video, uh, a video of the procedure, which you can then replay and look at and see what happens. Importantly, and perhaps something I hadn't appreciated, it's important that we... Proceed until there is complete loss of consciousness uh, rather than just saying, oh, I feel it's coming now and then stopping. They must go on and have their head drop because you might then get a systole as part of it. And that is a uh, a chance to know how best to treat this because a systolic uh, syncope would then require a pacemaker. So you def- definitely need someone there, experience who can um, uh, make sure it's safe. Overall, by the way, it is safe. They said there might've been three deaths in 1986 when this was first introduced. So, um, and all of those had significant uh, uh, additional risk factors. So it is a safe test. The important thing at the end is to ask the patient if it were a typical attack they've just had. And because it must be, otherwise it, it isn't a positive test. And the other thing is that they must be accompanied on the journey home. So um, nicely illustrated, nice tracings of tilt table, uh, blood pressure um, monitoring and heart rate monitoring, well written. Uh, I, I think that we'll we'll find that readers will will find this a, a useful paper to refer back to when uh, uh, requesting one of these tests.
1: Yeah, I thought, I thought it was very nice. And I mean, obviously, the, the question is, what is it looking for? And you've mentioned the vasovagal, which obviously is the commonest outcome, but uh, you can also find uh, classical orthostatic hypotension. Um, immediate or delayed orthostatic hypertension, and two other phenomena which uh, people probably uh, aren't as aware aware of. Um, Psychogenic pseudosyncope is the the preferred term essentially for a functional uh, loss of consciousness with normal blood pressure and pulse. And then uh, the condition that again, physicians will be aware of, um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where the blood pressure remains the same, but there's a gradual increase in pulse with uh, um, uh, with symptoms. And, you know, clearly these are things which are still not fully worked out, but um, uh, I, I think those will be the things that come through. So, uh, so no, I, I would agree. This is a very helpful box to be opened.
0: Yeah. And we, we had a bit of back and forth, didn't we, about this uh, term psychogenic pseudosyncope. I mean, you know, it, it sort of it doesn't, didn't feel quite right in the light of the our use of functional for um, uh, dissociative non-epileptic seizures and so forth. But it does seem that the cardiology world has established that they are going to use this term psychogenic pseudosyncopy, and didn't want to change it for the sake of this paper to dissociative or uh functional syncope. And that's fine. I mean, they they know what they're talking about, but um, psychogenic pseudosyncope it is. The other thing I picked up from it is that when people with a tendency for reflex vasovagal syncope are first tilted upright, there is an initial rise of blood pressure and pulse. And this reminds me that It is not a useful thing to do a lying and standing blood pressure in someone with a history of vasovagal syncope because you expect them when they stand up to have a slight rise in blood pressure and uh, rise in pulse. You're not going to diagnose it through uh, two minutes of lying and standing blood pressure in the clinic. That is a waste of time. In the clinic, you use the lying and standing blood pressure to diagnose orthostatic hypotension, people with autonomic, uh, neuropathy, where the history uh, is consistent. And there, of course, you're looking for a fall of blood pressure, but a maintained pulse rate, um, which doesn't reflexly uh, go up as it should do. Go on, do you, do you want first go at what you thought about this collection of papers in the editorial?
1: Well, so, uh, I mean, I think the the pontine ischemic stroke syndrome uh, is a a nice paper um, from uh, Marcus Ground, uh, Martin Punter and Ian uh, Rosemurgey. And they discussed the the range of pontine strokes and got some very nice pictures showing why you would get some crossed uh, spinothalamic and uh, eye changes in different syndromes, all of which actually are very rare. Um, you know, they talk about a classic Raymond, the common Raymond, the Fauville, the Martin uh, Gubbler and so on. But all of these are very classical phenomena and, and very clearly sort of ischemic because you get the sort of crossed pyramidal track uh, and contralateral cranial nerve disturbance. Now... We thought, well, you know, why should we be focusing on something as rare as this? And w- when we had the other two papers, again dealing with again rare phenomena, where that you've just described with facial and uh, facial sensory and facial motor loss. And but when when Tom Hughes and Richard Butterworth, uh, I believe they started this piece of work. Uh, there was no AI involved; it was all done uh, with beer in a pub. They were discussing, you know, what, what's how should we approach this, and they've they've come up with a. A very nice additional a a, a sort of a heuristic, I think, to help your thinking. So you've got the the fast slogan that you've mentioned, um, which is obviously everyone thinks about in relation to stroke. But what they've said is that basically, if if you just stick with that, you miss almost all the posterior fossa uh, posterior circulation phenomena. You know, you won't find um, uh, the crossed uh, motor and sensory disturbances that you see in brainstem ischemia. So they've suggested that you should go with fast to start with, but then you should actually go with what they talk about as slow three. And uh, the approach to there is the S is for the story first and foremost. As clinical historians, we have three sources, the patient, relatives and witnesses, and other healthcare professionals. The L is localising signs. As clinical anatomists, we note the normal and abnormal observed or elicited signs and use these to first localise the lesion anatomically then try and grade the associated disability as with, for example, the NIHSS. Then the objective tests, which include braid imaging, ECG, echoes, and so on. And these can be helpful, and there's a very strong case for using MR uh, with these potentially posterior fossa uh, stroke syndromes. And then finally, the W3, where... Uh, an accurate uh, anatomical localization, what a diagnosis of the pathology, and if possible, why the pathophysiology. So I think this is a a very nice heuristic which can be you know come into play in you know, a range of things, but but very sp- explicitly for the query stroke, any sort of sudden onset neurological disturbance. Think fast, then slow three, and uh, hopefully this will get some traction. And I think it's a very useful way to think about things.
0: It, it, it is, um, though one can't help feeling that you no, know, this they, they've worked quite hard to work out what what it could be to to be slow. Obviously, the opposite of fast, because it's really history examination investigation and interpretation. But instead of history examination investigation, which would be H E I I, it's uh, it's slow three. But but anyway, that that's the the point really that um, the fast test would not do it. But uh, then we do need to stop and think, well, actually, with that additional clinical information, it might yet still be a stroke. So uh, when we see a, a Bell's palsy, when we see a trigeminal neuropathy, it, it, it could yet still be a stroke. And it, with, with the story, uh, the lateralizing signs of tests, etc. cetera. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, what, what Tom used tantalizingly in the Editorial mentions about the first name of Raymond. So Raymond, I hadn't heard of Raymond syndrome actually until I read this. But in 1896, Fulgent Raymond. So if you're thinking of naming a child or grandchild, if uh, then think about the word Fulgence as a, as a first name. That, that's a, a great name. So yeah, the, the, I think there's a there's a lot of clever thinking in this editorial, and I, I would commend to you actually that. Uh, we should, we should think a bit wider than just the FAST test, obviously with the acute diagnosis of stroke. And uh, there's also a little paragraph as well about the use of eponyms, because there's a lot of eponyms in these papers that uh, we might be tempted to use. Are they the, the best way to think about stroke, or should we be thinking instead about the anatomy and which pathways and which nuclei, et cetera, are involved? So, um, yeah, this is a worthy collection of papers. I'm very pleased to be able to publish these.
1: Phil, I'd just uh, like to come back to the AI paper, um, because I think it it captured the history and examination. Uh, If you describe it in AI terms, it is a semi-scripted, fully integrated cognitive verbal motor activity that relies on examiner skill and experience, if you've ever thought of it in that way.
0: But well, I suppose coming back to the AI paper as well, you know, what 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 the what that could involve? I mean, it could could be that even in a small brainstem stroke, uh, that AI could pick it up, whereas perhaps a a very experienced neuroradiologist with the eye might not be able to. And so, yeah, I think in in the world of AI, we probably uh, would miss fewer of these anyway. But still, it's great to be reminded that uh, back to the history examination is really the, the,
1: still going to be the way forward in 2023. Though, though, crucially, the thing that beats the AI is if you know where to look, you can see it. Yes. Um, so the, the the clinical localization says we need to look at the ponds. Oftentimes, it's a very small spot. And in fact, on a couple of the papers that you can, the illustrations, these are subtle changes, but they're subtle and important. And in, because they're in the right place, uh, that's why yeah. they're
0: important. But, but the AI may tell you where to look because the AI, you know, comparing it to millions of scans will say, actually, I think the pons is a bit dodgy. And then the neuroradiologist can say, oh, yes, actually, I agree. So uh, the, the AI can can help, I think. Yeah. So actually, the the, the next one is, is definitely not AI. And this is uh, Andrew Lees, who is a, a deep thinker, highly experienced clinician and happens to write beautifully as well. And he's written an opinion piece about, it's called "Reduced to a Number. And it's really thinking about uh, how pre-visit questionnaires, which are increasingly used around the world, uh, and especially in the field of movement disorders, risk taking something away from the consultation, risk setting the wrong tone and even trivialising the consultation. And he puts in a great quotation in this, actually. He says, humans are storytelling machines and should never be reduced to a bundle of nerves. I thought that was great alongside the AI paper. But also, it's great alongside the Intrinsic Motivation paper. And I can't help thinking that Andrew will be very pleased to read about intrinsic motivation, because it clearly is not to do with tick boxing. It's much more about helping individual patients to think positively about their their disease. And you're not gonna get that from from a tick box. Um, In in the same editorial actually, uh, Andrew makes a plea for face-to-face consultations. And I can see the point of that in Movement Disorders Clinic very strongly. And also a plea to allow people to speak freely and without interruption. And you can't do that when you're answering a closed question on a questionnaire. And then against that, in the same issue, we asked uh, the person who refereed it, that's Baz Blum from uh, Nijmegen, to do a sort of um, other view, really, uh, how questionnaires actually might help people prepare for a consultation. Um, And Baz and his co-workers have also introduced at least me for for the first time to this uh, dopamine versus hopamine. So dopamine are the medical things in movement disorders. Hopamine, hope of mine, uh, relate to the personal and lifestyle uh, priorities of an individual. Uh, So it's a a balanced pair of um, opinion papers here, which I hope will allow readers to form their own views on pre-visit questionnaires um, obviously they they do have advantages but but really uh you know it, it is at the end of it a clinical consultation and um it, it mustn't be guided too much by the the things that uh, people have ticked in the questionnaire
1: what do you think garrick I thought it was, I mean, it's very interesting to have two sides because clearly these are the sorts of things which are introduced and whilst um, the studies demonstrate that patients have quite a number of non-motor symptoms uh, and and, uh, often are unaware of them, the issue is to whether uh, actually... Outlining them, declaring them, and int- introducing this actually uh, makes a difference. Isn't necessarily the way in which it's tested. Um, so I think reflecting on this area of clinical practice, uh, and as you say, fitting fitting in very nicely with the uh, intrinsic motivation paper. It, 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 these are softer areas within the way in which we do things, but actually probably have quite powerful outcome or it, it, have quite powerful uh, influence on outcomes and uh, uh, patients perception of themselves and and their their condition so I think um, it's informative and useful to have a debate about this
0: yeah Uh, and it it shows I think that AI will not take over the role of a neurologist Uh, I think that that there's still so much more that, uh, that the human interaction is going to offer to to neurology for years and years to come at least the perfect note to end on. So, I hope I hope everyone listening has enjoyed that. Uh, we we certainly have enjoyed putting this together. So, please leave us a rating or a review if you've got any comments or suggestions of ways to improve this or any of our Practical Neurology podcasts. And um, if you've got the chance, please listen to the other podcasts on this and on past issues. They're available on Spotify, on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you very much indeed for listening and until next time, happy reading, happy listening and uh, goodbye from me, Phil Smith. And goodbye
1: from me, Garrett Fuller.